morning. Today is Wednesday, August 8th, 2018. It's the Middle East Forum on WWDB, 860 AM. It's been quite an eventful week, especially considering since our last show, we found that the United Kingdom has erupted in support for Mr. Tommy Robinson, an ardent anti-Islamist activist who was released from prison last week after having served over two and a half months unjustly being put in Her Her Majesty's prison service. We now know that some facts have become evident. Number one, we understand that Mr. Robinson was subject to solitary confinement for being put in prison 23 hours per day. Now, even beyond that, sometimes the prison guards would allow for his actual prison cell to be left open where he might actually have been subject to harassment from other inmates, He was supposed to have been in protective custody, but this was not observed by the prison wardens. And we even find ourselves going so far to see that he could have been in a few violent altercations being pushed around by other individuals. His life was on the line. To speak about Mr. Ghost, to speak about Mr. Robinson later today, we'll have Paul Gosar, member of Congress from Arizona's 4th District, on the line starting at about 1010. And then going into another subject, we'll also be speaking with Dr. Zuhdi Jasser on his recent testimony before the House Oversight and Government Reform Subcommittee on National Security, highlighting the Middle East Forum's recent report on Islamic Relief, the world's largest Islamist Western-funded charity, with connections to Hamas in Gaza, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, especially during President Mohamed Morsi's regime back in 2012 and 2013, and also dealing with the potential evidentiary proceedings with a federal investigation being brought into this uh, organization as well. We also were made aware this week of a federal investigation going into ISRA, the Islamic State Relief Agency, not to be confused with Islamic Relief Worldwide, a Sudanese charity that has been blacklisted as an al-Qaeda front group since 2004. Another Middle East Forum report was able to find that ISRA, as it's known in other words, was receiving federal money from USAID, the United States Agency for International Development. This means that the federal government in 2014 under President Obama was complicit with funding an al-Qaeda affiliate. There's Freedom of Information Act requests that were put out a year ago, which highlight a conversation between USAID and its contractor affiliate in Sudan, World Vision, one of the world's largest humanitarian aid organizations, and a deliberate conspiracy and not necessarily a cover-up, but it did take a year and a half to get the information from the federal agency, but a willful conspiracy to try to get around federal law and eventually have the Treasury Department and the State Department under the Obama administration acquiesce to the funding of this organization. Now, just to think for a second, you are paying your money into the federal coffers for the provision of transportation services, for foreign aid, for direct assistance, Social Security, Medicare, whatever else. Where in your tax bill did it say that you had to underwrite al-Qaeda? This is something that I think is beyond belief. There's another investigation which has been launched into the USAID professionals and into the non-governmental organization or or, or non-governmental organization officials responsible for this money transfer. It's one thing if they had made a gross mistake. That would have been gross negligence. But the fact that they willingly knew that an organization that served as Osama bin Laden's front group when he was in Sudan before he moved to Afghanistan in 99 and 2000, an organization that was just a decade before the provision of this money, 
fundraising money in Western Europe and also in the United States after their offices were shut down here for suicide bombings in the Middle East. What kind of world are we living in where a Western democracy, the United States government, under a president who was already circumspect in his policies regarding the provision of funds to overseas entities that had questionable intent, but one in which we knew under two presidential administrations had received money from the federal government after they had been labeled publicly by the Justice Department, by the State Department, by the White House, by the Treasury Department, and by the United States Congress as having been an affiliate for the U.S.'s greatest enemy in the Middle East, that of al-Qaeda. The U.S. government gave funds to an organization that in one way or another was responsible for the deaths of over 3,000 Americans, not to mention countless thousands of others who were present in Afghanistan and in Iraq during the U.S. military struggles there. But I think that what you have in this situation is, is that there is a need not just for an investigation, but, but for better federal oversight and for better federal regulation into the way in which our government distributes foreign aid overseas, specifically in the region, which has been born with so much risk, so much calamity, and so much catastrophe. Some other things that have come up in the news over the last week, besides what we were focusing on during our interviews later today, are some investigations that have been, in one way or another, highlighted dealing with lawful Islamism, or, in this case, political Islam in the West. Islamist Watch, or IW as we call it around the Middle East Forum, works to combat the ideas and institutions of lawful Islamism, not the violent jihadis who get the headlines, in the United States and throughout the West. It argues that radical Islam is the problem, but moderate mainstream Islam is the solution. This project and the staff who work on it at the forum investigate the extremism and terror links of institutions that have imposed their leadership upon American Islam. These groups claim to speak on behalf of Western Islam and yet operate without a mandate from ordinary American Muslims. Sunni Islam versus Shia Islam itself is a decentralized religion. There is no ayatollah overseeing the tenets of Islam. There is no pope, if we want to take a, a reference or a metaphor, that oversees Sunni Muslims. But in this case, in the United States, certain radicals have taken over that mandate. Islamist Watch itself works to educate the public, media, and politicians about the wide range of competing political and religious sects that make up Islam in the West. It studies the difference between different Islamist networks and look for ways to empower moderates. We do all of this work through in-depth research, articles, blog posts, and interviews on television and on radio like you'll hear today. We also give private briefings to politicians, government officials, and law enforcement. Now, the one thing that has really become uh, uh, known to me is, is not necessarily this investigation into Islamic relief or the funding of an al-Qaeda affiliate by the Obama administration, but the day-in, day-out financing of Islamist organizations by American community foundations, corporate social responsibility programs, and private foundations. Last November, we actually worked with the Daily Caller to produce a feature article about our investigation into foundation financing of Islamist groups. The front page story examines some of the $5.8 million of foundation grants that have been given by the charitable arms of America's most prominent corporations to extreme Islamist groups. We are continuing to uncover new donations daily and lobby foundations to halt their support. But it's one group in particular that has been particularly egregious. The Silicon Valley Community Foundation, recently beset by scandal due to a sexual harassment case brought against it, 
has given hundreds of thousands of dollars to organizations like the Council on American Islamic Relations, the Muslim Brotherhood's front group here in the United States, and Islamic Relief that we had previously mentioned. But we don't just look at the foundations that are providing money to Islamists. We also look at the money that Islamists are giving to politicians. In total, we've logged $1.9 million in donations to federal political candidates running for office and almost $700,000 to state and local elections. After this message, we'll return with Congressman Paul Gosar. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum. The Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today, or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to the Middle East Forum in the Morning. I'm Greg Roman, your host on WWDB 860 AM. I've been waiting for this interview for weeks, ladies and gentlemen. Representative Paul Gosar is an individual who has stood valiantly for Western liberal values, especially in the wake of an egregious case and miscarriage of justice that took place last week after the U.S. court declared that there was a certain amount of umbrage, or rather the United Kingdom court declared that there was a certain amount of umbrage taken by a lower court judge in the Leeds County Court at the uh, United Kingdom's uh, uh, justice system as related to Mr. Tommy Robinson. Now, Mr. Gosar, uh, Congressman Gosar, actually went out and stood in line with other individuals, other politicians, other community leaders, other grassroots leaders throughout Western Europe urging that the U.K. government and the U.K. judiciary and Her Majesty's Prison Service take a second look at the Robinson case. Congressman Gosar is serving his fourth term in Congress and focusing on not just bringing jobs back to his district, but fighting the issues that affect his constituents at home and also the issues that they care about overseas, even if it's with America's closest ally. Congressman Gosar, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. And thank you for attending the Free Tommy Rally a few weeks ago for all the work that you do promoting Western interests in the U.S. Congress. And even more so, now that we know last week he was freed, I think it's maybe time for a little bit of reflection. Uh, but, but before we get into the issue itself, can you describe your experience at the Free Tommy Robinson Rally in London a few weeks ago? 
It was. Um, there were over 10,000 people present in the streets, and this was even during a time when England was playing in the third and fourth place match in the uh, World uh, Cup, and then Wimbledon was going on. So this was a vitally important issue to people, main, main Street people in London and throughout England. Uh, very vibrant, people very vocal, uh, peaceful. Um, you know, they wanted to have a result, um, and they wanted it not to be lied to. They didn't want things covered up, and they wanted to get back the truth. And uh, I think from that standpoint, um, I think it's it, it behooved some of us from over across the pond in the United States to stand up in regards to free speech and, and freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, and due process of law. Now, did you have the opportunity to interact with some of the, the attendees at the rally on the street? What was their general feeling? What, what, what did you have in terms of uh, you know, being able to see the way that they were reacting to the speakers? Or, or when you were speaking yourself, what was the reaction of people in the crowd? Well, they, they leaned forward to listen. Uh, they, uh, they were very attentive. Um, you know, the, the, the fact that we concentrated on the free exercise of free speech and free, uh, 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 freedom of assembly and religion, I think, and accountability. I think those were the important points that they wanted to hear. But they also wanted to make sure that their government was accountable. They weren't, um, pushing things under the rug. And from the standpoint of when you look at these grooming and, and rape gangs, there is a almost a, a 100% application that it is Islamic uh, militant uh, factions of Islam that are backing these. This is where they kidnap young girls. They groom them for uh, acts of prostitution. This is wrong. And, you know, people need to hear what's going on wrong because then you can't fight it. You can't offset it. You can't uh, eradicate it unless you understand the whole predicament that you're in. And as news broke out last week that Tommy Robinson had been released on bail pending a new hearing, do you think that your involvement and the other work of organizations calling for his release had an impact? You know, I only hope it did. You know, uh, I, I can't speak, you know, for how people reviewed it. But it brought international attention to a, a fundamental problem that we see here is that it's uh, it, the degradation, uh, the, the subjugation of young women, uh, into prostitution and grooming gangs is wrong, absolutely wrong, uh, against their will. Um, and this seems to be running as an undercurrent uh, in, in in the UK with uh, Bangladeshi and, and Pakistani, particularly Islamic uh, groups. And there needs to be accountability. Um, we believe in the personhood. We believe in the liberties of each person that they have. And this is totally wrong. And this is what we ought to be standing up for in the persecution of these people around the world. Now, you've received some backlash regarding your support for Mr. Robinson and the issues that you're talking about, especially after your speech at the London rally. How do you respond to your detractors? Well, I find it very interesting that even my state paper, like the Arizona Republic, which I call the Repugnant, rebuffed me saying that I spoke on behalf of a bigot. Really? Uh, so they really condone, uh, you know, the grooming and rape gangs that were actually being at a contest here. So they actually look at the exploitation of women and children in a positive light. You know, that would that lend itself that they supported Backpage out here in, in the United States. Um, the other thing is CARE uh, put out a statement. They didn't did not say that I was wrong. They just said, how dare I save them? Uh, so from the standpoint is, is I spoke the truth, you know, the, the truth sets you free, but you can't fix something until you talk and tell the truth.
Right. And I think that a report by an independent uh, inquisitor from the U.K. government in February of 2018, only a few months ago, released a report on the status of Sharia courts in the United Kingdom. It said that women had second-class rights, that there was no government regulation over domestic issues, the individuals were being married in neighborhoods without any government recognition of their union. And beyond that, it also said that the bifurcation of British society has led to a point where these Sharia-mandated courts have to be regulated by the U.K. authorities. Otherwise, it's as if, though, some communities are acting like a state within a state. And I think that maybe that the U.K. government is starting to wake up to this right now, or at least that they have a certain amount of uh, oversight and investigation because of the good work of a few reporters that exposed those grooming gangs. And in addition to the work that Mr. Robinson did, you might want to refer your detractors to information that's coming out of Her Majesty's government itself. Um, Absolutely. And that and that also means that we here in the U.S. have to understand what's going on, too, because there's innuendos and situations uh, around the country that are hotspots that need to be looked at because Sharia is not compatible in regards to our Constitution. So from that standpoint, there's an applicable application right here in the United States. So why do you feel like it's impo- important for you? A member of the U.S. Congress who represents seven, eight hundred thousand American constituents to get involved in matters like this of Tommy Robinson. You're, you're, you're fairly, uh, I don't want to say new to the fight against radical Islamism, but your opinions are only starting to develop. I saw a great hearing that you did a few weeks ago on the status of the Muslim Brotherhood in the United States and the questioning that you did with Dr. Zuhdi Jasser. Are your main concerns regarding Islamist movements in the United States, or do you see yourself being part of a much more global effort? Well, you know, I look at this as, you know, um, uh, as a, a, a point in time in, in regards to challenging uh, Islam, like Catholicism and Judaism, into a reformation process. You know, if, if Islam is truly going to ascend as one of the major religions in the, in the world, it's got to be tolerant. It's got to go through a reformation and a reaffirmation of tolerance of other religions. That's what's key here. And there seems to be a part of the militant aspect of Islam that has, has, has decided that they're going to speak and they're not being reined in. We're guilty by association if we do not condemn these acts. And so this is not just prevalent in the UK. We're seeing the migration of a lot of Islamists throughout the world, including the United States. And so assimilation and, and, uh, uh, the religion going through a reformation process of tolerance uh, of other religions is one of the most important aspects they have to, we have to have if we're looking for a peaceful world where uh, individual rights are, are recognized with liberties and freedoms. I would even say that there are some Muslim reformers who are out there, including the Muslim Reform Movement, the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, the Canadian Muslim Congress, that are having their voices suppressed by more radical figures who claim to represent mainstream Islam in the United States. I mean, if we look at just the statistics, 4,000 Muslims serve in the American military. Dozens serve on uh, local and, and state benches. We see that there are Muslim leaders who are doctors, lawyers, businessmen. But they have not elected for individuals that have connections to the Muslim Brotherhood, to Hamas, to Dio Bandi radical movements. We had a, a member of the Maryland uh, uh, State Democratic Party who was the spokesperson for a Bangladeshi Islamist party accused of ethnic cleansing back in the 70s. And yet he was able to get his 
party's uh, allowance to run in a primary. And I think that it's incumbent upon elected officials like you and think tanks like the one that we run here in Philadelphia to ensure that there is a bifurcation between those who are trying to hijack the religion and claim to be its ambassadors and the gross majority of American Muslims who just want to be American citizens like me and you. Absolutely. I think that's perfectly stated. Uh, it, it, it requires a movement and it requires accountability. So, and if we are si- if we are silent, we allow this to continue unabated. Right. Now, if there's anything in Congress that my uh, listeners should be aware of regarding legislative initiatives, hearings that you think we should look into more, what would you want to tell a national audience about what you think is maybe the number one Islamist threat here in the United States? I think number one, it's 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 the way that money is 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 uh, pursed through um, uh, shell uh, corporations um, or institutions that fundamentally helps fund uh, this militant arm of Islam. I think that is one of the key components. We have power of the purse, and if you have uh, no money, it's very hard to get your message out. And I think it's very important and incumbent upon Congress to go back to the delegation of accountability with where that money goes. And then also stand up on behalf of individual rights. If we're truly believing that it's about the individual, their life's liberty and the pursuit of happiness, then we have to stand up for all people. It doesn't matter if they're in Africa, the UK, or here in the United States. Uh, even though the, uh, the, the individual has to be pursued and fought for. And would you support a federal cut? to organizations, whether they be American or foreign or domestic, I guess is the best way to say it, that oppose American values, constitutional values? Absolutely. That's what we stand for. Um, That was the predication of our Constitution. And if if you can't support that, then the money's got to go away, not just because it needs to go completely away, um, because um, that's our country, that's our foundation. A country that doesn't understand its history, its foundation, is doomed to, to fall apart and, and to repeat it. Well, I, I think that's a valiant effort. Now, I know that you had a line of question here. We only have about a minute left with Dr. Jasser regarding Islamic Relief, the world's largest Islamist charity receiving Western money. Uh, what's your opinion of the organization? I think this is one of the things that I just brought up in a, in a shell corporation in which they drive the money to uh, groups that are not uh, compatible with the values here in the United States. Well, we need to have more and oversight. That's why the Office of Inspector General should be taking a look at this. There needs to be accountability to that and making sure that the money does not get to them. So we need to put the eye on the prize. Sunlight is always a great disinfectant, uh, no matter if it's an Islamic issue um, or a, a, a relief aid. Um, it all has to be scrutinized for the appropriate process. If they're friendly to it, uh, the United States is trying to pursue, we're happy to try to support. But if they're against uh, the pursuits of what our Constitution stands for, the money cannot stand. Congressman Gosar, thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me on. Well, you just heard from Congressman Paul Gosar speaking about his trip to London advocating on behalf of Tommy Robinson, his opinion on Islamic relief, and many other issues that I think are going to be receiving the attention of the U.S. Congress after they get back from their August recess. Next, we'll be joined by Dr. Zuhdi Jasser, the CEO and founder of the American Islamic, Fo- uh, American Islamic Forum for Democracy, after these messages. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. 
The forum sees the region, with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction, as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that, overall, you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the Middle East Forum in the Morning. Today is Wednesday, August 8th. My next guest is someone that I had the privilege of getting to know, sitting in Philadelphia outside of the uh, public broadcasting headquarters, a few hours after our organization had had a dinner with uh, several NATO parliamentarians. And the day before, we ended up receiving the anger of the president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. But that's a story for another time. Dr. Zuhdi Jasser is founder and president of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, an organization that advocates for the preservation of the founding principles of the U.S. Constitution, liberty and freedom, through the separation of mosque and state. Dr. Jasser previously served as commissioner and vice chair to the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom and regularly briefs members of the House and Senate on the threat of political Islam. Most recently, he testified in front of the House Oversight and Government Reform Subcommittee on national security, on the global threat of the Muslim Brotherhood, and more, uh, I think appropriately, the threat that it poses here in the United States. Good morning, Zuhdi. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Uh, congratulations on the new program. Thank you very much, and, and thanks for joining us today. Uh, we wanted you to be one of the first guests. We've had a, a great, I think, decade-long relationship, maybe 15 years now, with uh, you yeah. and your organization, and, and it's really a pleasure to have you as one of our first guests. So... We, we know more about your organization. We know more about this issue. But before we get into the issue we're going to talk about, you started out your career in the medical field as an internist and cardiologist. What led you to go from being a doctor to start getting involved with grassroots activism and forming AIFD in 2003? Well, after I left the Navy, I came to Phoenix uh, to join my father in practice. And then 9-11 happened and realized that... Uh, Almost every voice that was speaking on behalf of our community were, were uh, offshoots of this Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups in the West and also offshoots of what I call Petro-Islam. And I realized uh, no different than our founding fathers, be it Benjamin Rush, who was a physician that was one of the founding fathers, uh, be it uh, uh, Maimonides, that was a scholar in uh, Judaism but was also a physician. I think in history there are many uh, scholars that may not necessarily be theologians but yet take significant leadership roles in faith traditions and reform. And especially now when you look at where Islam is in its history, 
theocrats uh, are positioned to solidify their power as a result of the vacuums being created as dictatorships change, or these vacuums can create opportunities. And it's an opportunity for us that live in freedom here in America. You know, my parents escaped Syria and the dictatorship of uh, Hafez and then Bashar Assad. And I'll tell you, as much as the changes will have to be centered in the Middle East and Muslim-majority countries, we have a laboratory to do things here that we just can't do. Organizations like our American Islamic Forum would not last but a few months in Egypt or in Syria or in Iraq. And ultimately, I think we have a responsibility as Americans to lead reform globally here in America. What do you see as the biggest threat to the American Muslim community? And how do you see a way to combat radicalization that may be going on within it or by other forces overseas that are trying to influence it? I think there are two major threats. One is the solidification of dictatorships and especially Islamist theologians, be it the Khomeinis on the Shia side or the Muslim Brotherhood and Salafi jihadists of the Wahhabis on the Sunni side. The other threat is complacency, the silent majority, uh, almost like the, the Germans that tolerated Nazism and uh, then complained to be victims. I think the the majority of Muslims are that are here in America are here to escape the Islamism, but yet we face a threat of complacency, silence, uh, silence, fear, and I think that's been my biggest challenge. As you know, we've been working together for almost 15 years, and yet uh, what I thought would have been progress we would have made in 15 years, as much as I, I'm proud of a lot of the accomplishments we've made, the complacency of living in a country where Islamists know they would never take over, but yet my colleagues see the problem, and yet they're doing nothing. And I think that's one of the primary uh, threats I see to our community. Do you feel like with the Trump presidency and the ascendancy of his uh, after his election to the White House that the issues that you've been fighting for for the last decade and a half have received more public attention? They've certainly, uh, I, I think, um, there's been a, a time now that uh, the Islamists have had much less influence and they're not guiding the agenda definitely of the White House or elsewhere. But I think some of the balkanization in America has prevented some of the bipartisan nature of working together that we've needed to bring attention to women's rights, gay rights, uh, freedom, free speech, all the things that should be at the forefront uh, that uh, I think President Trump has uh, pointed out uh, that uh, there are problems uh, within uh, Muslim-majority communities, yet because of the Trump derangement syndrome have prevented us from focusing together on areas of uh, domestic and foreign policy. Now let's focus on an issue that you recently testified on in front of Congress regarding the global and also domestic threat that the Muslim Brotherhood may pose. Now, I've heard the argument that when someone says the Muslim Brotherhood in America, they say, well, who's the head of it? Who's the Shura Council? Who's responsible for it? This is a, somewhat of an amorphous idea. We have to get much more specific when we're talking about banning an organization like the Ikhwaniya, the uh, Arabic name for the brothers. But... What do you see as the U.S.'s biggest challenge in designating this group as a terror organization, or maybe it's different appendages? And why do you think it's been so difficult for either Congress or this administration to do so? I think it's because of uh, the infiltration of uh, countries like Qatar, who are all in with uh, being sort of the mothership of the Muslim Brotherhood globally, and when they fund organizations like Brookings, etc., they've created this mantra that somehow we as Muslims uh, need to accept this bigotry of low expectations where we have to accept the deception that the Brotherhood has nonviolent arms and the violent arms have nothing to do with the nonviolent arms, which is, is basically 
telling the, the Muslim population that we have to live under the boots of theocrats for the rest of our lives, uh, when in fact, I think the, the way to look at it is, uh, you know, you begin by declaring them a foreign terrorist organization with their mothership in Egypt, and then organizations that are also brotherhood, be it in Yemen and Syria and Libya and Iraq and elsewhere, also become FTOs. And in, in the West, where they are not operating under uh, the name Muslim Brotherhood. Now, London they are, so we could discuss whether that would also be an FTO. But in America, you will find quickly, even though CARE and the Islamic State of North America are definitely uh, offshoots, fruit of that poison tree, since they're not designating themselves Muslim Brotherhood, they will actually wither on the vine within five to ten years. A good example is the Holy Land Foundation. We were able to shut down the Holy Land Foundation without even designating them FTO because they were funding the Brotherhood of Hamas. So ultimately, by designating major global entities of the Brotherhood foreign terrorist organizations, you will begin to suffocate the Western uh, arms of the Muslim Brotherhood. Right. It's kind of when you poison the uh, well, you end up getting the entire population to understand that it's no longer worth their while to be part of that movement. Now, you mentioned Qatar in the opening uh, remarks to the last question. I'd like to read from a report regarding Arizona public schools that was published in the National Review on uh, January uh, 27th. On January 27th, Qatar Foundation International sponsored a continuing education event titled Middle East 101 for public school teachers in Phoenix, Arizona, hosted by the Arizona Department of Education, which is not surprising given that QFI has donated over $450,000 to Arizona public schools and over $30 million to public schools across the country. Unfortunately, while there was a good deal of interesting material, teachers also got a large helping of Islamist propaganda designed to influence American school children and ultimately to advance Qatari foreign policy. How do you react to the Qataris, not just trying to influence what's going on in Washington, D.C., but getting to a very, very local level, even your proverbial backyard? I know, and thank you so much for bringing that up. You know, it, it saddens me that Here's an issue that we've been trying to shake the trees on here locally in Phoenix and in Arizona, and your leadership from Philadelphia is is bringing an attention to an issue that we've tried to expose here in Arizona. And the bottom line is, is uh, unfortunately, when you look at foreign diplomacy, people think that well, as long as the Qataris have a base, a military base there, and they're they're reaching out uh, uh, with an outstretched hand to be our allies in foreign policy, geopolitical issues in the region, then they must be our allies. And never mind the fact that the leading cleric in Qatar, who's friends with the Al-Thani family that runs that government, is uh, Kardawi. And Sheikh Kardawi is banned from coming to the West. He has a following that includes 60 million that watch his show, Sharia and Life, and uh, has uh, been a Holocaust denier, has advocated for terror against American troops, against Israeli citizens, on and on, has been responsible for the radicalization of many uh, future al-Qaeda operatives that we have targeted in war, and yet we seem to reject this and ignore it when foundations in America, like the Arizona one you mentioned, uh, then start working with Qatar, ignoring what uh, Yusuf Kardawi does. We have at our organization translated his Arabic site and what his plans were in 2009, before the Arab awakening started, that his version of Islamic democracy is actually a theodemocracy. So his the the world vision of uh, the world view of the Qataris has nothing in common with American world view. 
And it would be like if in the Cold War, states like Arizona were working with communist organizations because they happened to not be in the Soviet uh, you know, empire, when in fact they had the same ideology. And that's what we need to educate Americans, including starting here in Arizona, about why we shouldn't be bonding with the Qataris and other apologists for the Brotherhood. I, I want to get a little more granular because on this show we're trying to highlight issues that otherwise are not receiving national attention. Let's Let's go back to this report from the National Review and see exactly what the Qatari-funded Muslim Brotherhood-friendly uh, Qatar Foundation is offering to K-12 through students in Arizona public schools and probably by guilt of association many other public schools throughout the United States. This is a quote. Lesson plans contain anti-Semitic and anti-American material, particularly several lessons promoted by the Zinn Foundation which claims to promote a revisionist people's history. These include greed as a weapon, teaching the other Iraq war, which examines the greed of the corporations ostensibly responsible for the Iraq war in order to, I quote, feast on Iraq's economy. And another lesson plan, who's terrorism, which questions the definition of terrorism, creating scenarios for students to discuss. For example, if Israeli soldiers taunting and shooting children in Palestinian refugee camps with the assistance of U.S. military aid should be considered an example of terrorism. I could not imagine any of my children who go to public school to be subject to these lesson plans. And what I can't believe is the acquiescence of public school officials and the Arizona Secretary of Education, anyone else who has been made available of these subjects, or even local officials, knowing that they are inviting a foreign power to indoctrinate American students in lessons that are anathema to our values. What do you have to say about that? I, I couldn't agree more. And when people wonder why it is, that uh, you can get videos where you go on campuses and you see uh, uh, students uh, basically uh, uh, not even be able to recognize Hamas as a terrorist organization or even recognize the threat of the ISIS flag and others, and yet uh, they are, are anti-American and see our troops as evil, it's coming from the fact that you have funding coming from the enemies of America uh, anti-Semitic organizations. I mean, the Middle East Studies Association has a is based out of Tucson here, and uh, some of the vile literature coming out of there. That Middle East Studies Association, and it is not a coincidence that they tried to suppress the release of the ISIS documents coming out of Syria that the, even the New York Times reported on. They wanted them suppressed. So all of this runs together. When you have funding, it's not just one piece of education, the material coming out of it. When I was on the U.S. Commission and we were trying to expose the radicalization of textbooks that were written by the Saudis, the Saudis would say, oh, we'll white out this, we'll remove this paragraph or not. It's like taking Mein Kampf and saying that you could white out parts of it and no longer make it a Nazi uh, ideology. Zuchti, this is Zuchti, ideology Zuchti. coming from Qatar. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And on this program, we're going to focus especially close on what's going on in Arizona, and we hope to have you back maybe in a few weeks to give us an update. That's all the time we have today. Dr. Jasser, Zuchdi, thank you so much for joining us. Anytime. Thanks for having me, Greg. So you guys heard about what's going on right now in Arizona, how the Muslim Brotherhood is affecting it, Qatar, all of its allies. But next, we'll hear from an expose from the Middle East Forum with our own Sam Westrop after these messages. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction 
as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to the second half of the program. What a fascinating conversation we had with Congressman Gosar and Dr. Zuhdi Jasser, president and founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. But our next guest is an individual himself, a uh, former uh, resident of the United Kingdom, now residing in Boston, and someone who I work with very closely day in and day out at the Middle East Forum, Mr. Sam Westrop, director of our Islamist Watch Project. Prior to his uh, taking the lead on all the work we do on lawful Islamism, Sam served as research director at Americans for Peace and Tolerance, where he excelled at tracking Islamist activity across New England and also founded Stand for Peace, a London-based counter-extremism organization monitoring Islamists throughout the U.K. Now, Sam, good morning. How are you? I'm fine. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Of course, and, uh, and thank you for all the great work that you do at the Forum. I'd like to go into two issues today that our organization has been focusing on for the past few months, and I think actually in, in, in your case for more than a year, on exposing Islamic relief, and also on the Obama administration's, or the recent revelations about the Obama administration, having given money to an al-Qaeda charity, uh, basically stemming from taxpayer funds. But before we get into those two issues, can you tell us a little bit more about the MEF project that you're director of, Islamist Watch? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Islamist Watch uh, works to combat the ideas and activities of what we call lawful Islamism. Uh, in the West, and particularly in the United States. So when we think of Islamist terror, uh, uh, a lot of people think violence, a lot of people think of al-Qaeda, al-Shabaab, and ISIS. But there's another, uh, even more dangerous uh, phenomena, which, which Islamist watch tackles, which is the threat of lawful Islamism, non-violent Islamists who are advancing their totalitarian agenda quietly through democratic processes, through exploiting the West's own societal and civic functions. We think this is much more dangerous in the long run, and Islamist Watch works to identify the groups behind this infiltration, to combat this infiltration, and to empower moderate Muslims who, like us, oppose this infiltration. So can you tell us not just about the work that you do right now, but when you say moderate Muslim, what do you mean? I mean, I'm thinking I go on the street, I see someone in a bayou, or I might see someone who might be a Caucasian, African-American, Asian-American, they could be Jewish, uh, Christian, Muslim, 
How how do you make that difference between someone who's following mainstream Islam and someone who's an Islamist? It's it's an interesting question, and it's actually a little more complicated than uh, a duality. There, are, the Islam is not divided into the extremists and the moderates. In fact, Islam is incredibly diverse. It's not just Sunni and Shia, but hundreds of different competing political and religious sects. Now, some of these sects are, are extremely moderate, some are extremely hardline, and some are, are, are somewhere in between. And one of the dangers of the way the media treats Islam in the West is assuming it's homogenous, assuming it's a single block with, with no varying ideas within it. So, in fact, moderation means can mean many different things, and, and extremism can mean many different things within Islam. But primarily, when Islamists watch books about moderate Islam, when we talk about moderate Muslims, we're talking about Muslims who support democratic Western ideas. We're talking about Muslims who oppose the terror of Sharia law, the horror of theocracy. We're talking about Muslims who oppose Islamist networks like the Muslim Brotherhood, and Hamas, and Salafi Islam. Uh, it's a, a pretty reasonable litmus test for to be a moderate Muslim if you do not want the West to be changed into a, a theocratic Islamic state. That makes you uh, not an Islamist, and it usually makes you a moderate Muslim. Okay, good definition. So in June, your project published a report examining the extremism and terror connections of the largest Islamic charity in the Western world, Islamic Relief. We already discussed it this morning with Representative Gosar, but... Despite receiving over $80 million from Western taxpayers over the last 10 years, including over $700,000, that's an astounding figure from the U.S. government, Islamic Relief is a prominent Islamist institution closely tied to Muslim Brotherhood networks with branches in over 20 countries. I understand that your report examined IR's extremist links and uh, uncovered some new evidence of terrorism connections and even a uh, federal investigation into its activities. Can you tell us a little bit more about the report, its impact, and the the um, you know results of, of what's happening now with follow-up after its release? Yes, of, of, of course. So, as you mentioned, Islamic Relief is a huge charity. Uh, that $80 million figure really sums up quite how much uh, of taxpayers' money is subsidizing this international organization. It has branches and offices in well over 20 countries, uh, and it is seen as a, a conduit for many Western governments' international aid efforts. Now, despite all this, Islamic Relief was set up by operatives from the Muslim Brotherhood. In fact, one of its founders was a man named Esam al-Haddad, who became uh, Mohammed Morsi, the deposed Muslim Brotherhood president in Egypt. Uh, this Islamic Relief founder, Esam al-Haddad, became Morsi's chief foreign policy advisor. Uh, other Islamic Relief branches, other Islamic Relief officials are very closely tied to Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamist networks. Uh, uh, around the world from its founding in the 1980s to, to today, uh, including here in the U.S., where the chairman of, of Islamic Relief USA is uh, openly, overtly a, a supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, so this is an Islamist charity, and yet it is treated as a, uh, a responsible actor by government, mostly because, firstly, it, it involves itself in some genuine charitable work, which wins it a lot of friends, uh, in um, political circles and in, in media circles, uh, but it also uh, uh, is, has been keen to show off its moderate credentials by involving itself in progressive causes as well. Now, this is all a, a sham. This is all a charade to hide a long history of subsidizing terror and supporting extremism. So our report found a number of 
uh, new examples of, of Islamic relief ties to Islamist extremism and terror. In the Gaza Strip, we realized, we, we uncovered that uh, Islamic relief is funding an organization called the Gaza Zakat Committee. Now, Zakat is one of the, the pillars of Islam. It's the, the, the duty of all Muslims to give to charity. But in the Gaza Strip, uh, the Zakat Committee does something a little different. It provides the social welfare arm of the Hamas government. So while Hamas is busy firing rockets at Israel, it is also a government. It needs to take care of its people. And groups like this Gaza Zakat Committee do that on behalf of Hamas. They run the, the camps, the school camps. They run the orphanages. They help distribute medicine at low cost. All of these sort of welfare-themed ideas. And this means groups that want to support Hamas can fund the welfare arm of Hamas without funding Hamas's terrorist activities directly, thus uh, circumventing international terror finance law. Uh, so this is what Islamic Relief does. It funds uh, organizations tied to extremists, tied to terrorists uh, in the Middle East. So now, now, now that you've laid out the problem, what can Western governments do to stop their sponsoring of terrorism or even to uh, try to see that Islamic Relief gets shut down and maybe replaced with a more responsible Islamic charity? Mm. Well, I, the most important, obvious thing to do is to stop distributing taxpayer money to Islamic Relief. Uh, that that has to be an immediate uh, an immediate response. And in fact, you know, we would welcome legislation that actually enforce that rather than just a commitment. Uh, Islamist organizations should not be receiving taxpayers' money. But uh, on a larger scale, there's the question of, well, how do you deal with this problem of Islamist charities funding the welfare arms of terrorist groups, of, of extremist groups? There is a precedent for this in U.S. law. Eleanor uh, Kagan, uh, when she was uh, a U.S. attorney, she uh, argued before a court successfully that when you help Hezbollah build homes, you are helping Hezbollah build bombs. So, and the American courts recognize this argument. So there is some understanding of non-material support for terrorism. There is some understanding of the fungibility of terror finance. This needs to be enshrined further into law. It needs to be understood that you cannot fund the welfare arms of terrorist groups. It needs to be understood that by doing that, you are subsidizing terror itself. Uh, and that's one of the most important next steps that the American government can take and that governments all across the world, especially the Western world, can and should take. So now now addressing uh, overseas, you know, stopping the flow of funds. Unfortunately, another report that you just came out with actually highlighted the funding of a foreign, uh, allegedly humanitarian organization that actually has been labeled as an al-Qaeda affiliate. Back in 2014, the Islamic Relief Agency, not to be confused with Islamic Relief Worldwide. What can you tell our listeners about this investigation that Islamist Watch carried out last July? This is a, a pretty fascinating story and a very worrying one at that. Um, for the last uh, eight months, uh, uh, Islamist Watch has been looking into a grant that was uh, given by USAID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, to a Sudanese organization, to a Sudanese charity called the Islamic Relief Agency. Now, this grant was publicly listed on a government grant tracking website when Islamist Watch came across it. We thought this was a little odd, as the only Islamic Relief Agency in Sudan that we were aware of was an organization that was designated as a terrorist group in 2004 by the U.S. government. 
So this grant, which was given in 2014, uh, 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 went to the Sudanese group, and we asked the government, uh, is it the same uh, organization as this al-Qaeda charity? And the government told us no. We then sued the government uh, when they refused to give us FOIA, uh, Freedom of Information Request uh, documents. We, we sued them and won, and won a large batch of documents that, that, that showed the details of this particular grant. The government then realized they had given us a slightly incorrect answer when we'd originally asked them about this grant and got back in touch with us uh, a month ago uh, in July and said that we did in fact fund, uh, get, approve a grant to this Sudanese charity, which is indeed a designated Al-Qaeda front in Sudan. Uh, and uh, we uh, then uh, realized our mistake and suspended the grant. But, and then the story gets particularly interesting, after we realized it was indeed a designated organization and we suspended the grant, the uh, State Department and OFAC, which is the Office of Foreign Assets Control in the Treasury, decided to approve the transfer of some money to this Sudanese charity anyway for work already performed. In other words, let me, let me sum it up. The Obama administration realized they had approved a grant to a designated al-Qaeda organization. After they realized that, they gave, they transferred some of the money anyway. This is taxpayers' money going towards a group that worked openly with Osama bin Laden, that worked openly with Afghani jihadists, that worked openly with, with al-Qaeda affiliates and other organizations. And the Obama administration approved this. And now we want to know why. And we're working with legislators and uh, other concerned parties in Washington to try and find out what exactly happened here. This behavior goes beyond negligence or willful negligence. It sounds as if, though, there was a intent, may I say even criminal intent, by officials working at the United States Agency for International Development, at World Vision, its, its con- contractor in Sudan, the individuals at the State Department who are aware of this and didn't raise a red flag. There's a reason why whistleblower laws exist. And the fact that the wool was pulled over Congress's eyes. This didn't come out until an investigation launched by a small non-governmental organization, the nonprofit Middle East Forum, only a year ago, had to bring this to light. Really seems as if, though, we're, we might just be scratching the surface of government funding of not just Islamist organizations, as in the case of Islamic Relief, but of potential terror affiliates like Al-Qaeda. Now, what do you think, in, in 30 seconds or less, the U.S. government should be doing in terms of pursuing an investigation of this entity, this transfer, and, and, and perhaps to, uh, to stop any future measures which may happen in the future? Well, as you said, firstly, identify the officials that approved this grant. Something badly went wrong. Identify the officials who approved this grant after confirming do it. We, was on do the we know who these officials are? Not yet. We have uh, a few ideas. We will be finding out and we will be publishing that information. Uh, once we found those officials, there needs to be an investigation as to their reasoning. Most importantly, clearly the process for ensuring that designated terror groups do not receive government grants is not working. There needs to be an urgent review of how this charity got approved a grant for the first place, in the very first place and how, in fact, they acquired the government ID numbers and, and various processes you need to go through to, to get a grant. Something went terribly wrong. 
And if this Al-Qaeda charity in Sudan received taxpayer funds, how many other extremist charities connected to hate and terror have also received government money? Well, Sam, thank you for the fascinating revelations. And we're going to have you back in a few weeks to talk about this and another program combating violent extremism, or in, in this case, as I think you've called it, the need for combating violent Islamism. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that wraps up our program this week on the Middle East Forum. We heard from Congressman Paul Gosar speaking about his trip to London a few weeks ago, calling for the release of Tommy Robinson. And now a week after his appeal took place, we can confirm that Tommy Robinson is free at home. We also heard from Dr. Zuhdi Jasser talking about his work in trying to get the Muslim Brotherhood classified as a terror organization. And not just because it's important to identify violent elements overseas that are anathema to American interests, but also because we saw that the vestiges that they have here in the United States are in one way or another showing their dangers back here at home, especially in the case of his home state of Arizona. And lastly, we heard from... Uh, Sam Westrop, the director of Islamist Watch, talking about two huge investigations that he spurred through the United States Congress and also through his work in trying to investigate lawful Islamist groups. And we see ourselves now wrapping up the end of this hour. And I hope that you'll join us next week on the Middle East Forum on WWDB 860 AM. Have a great week.